A group called the National Network for Critical Technology Assessment is the latest to call for restoration of U.S. scientific and technology preeminence. The group, working under a National Science Foundation grant, says, and I quote, Something disruptive is needed in how we fund the pathway from translational discovery to commercialization. Joining me with more, network member and Carnegie Mellon Engineering and Public Policy Professor Erica Fuchs. Dr. Fuchs, good to have you with us. Great to be here. And first of all, tell us about the National Network for Critical Technology Assessment. What is it and who's in it and what's its purpose? So I have been testifying for a number of years about the need for analytics to inform national technology strategy. And after the unprecedented chips and science legislation, which mandates that the U.S. government both have a national technology strategy, but also that NSF TIP evaluate what are the emerging challenges facing the U.S. and also how investments in key technologies could address those challenges, we had this incredible opportunity to bring together some of the top minds from across the country to ask how exactly would you do that? So if you want me to build on that, we were able to bring together leaders in analytics to inform national technology strategy from 13 tier one research universities from across the country. And what is it that they would analyze with their analytics? <laughs> well, the question was, could we in this year demonstrate that data and analytics could tractably make a difference in informing how the federal government could invest in emerging technologies to enhance its national objectives. And what's interesting about the federal government is that it is not a firm. It doesn't have one objective to maximize. It's not just about profit. It's about national security. It's about the economy. It's about social well-being. So how do you have analytics that help you inform how to invest limited dollars across those different objectives? Now, you might say early on in the semiconductor development, I mean, you know, going back to the 50s, there was some Defense Department money that helped lead to development of semiconductors. But then that industry exploded without any help from the government. It was just simply the entrepreneurship and great science and so on and the application of technology. So I guess the question is, how deeply should the government even be in deciding these things when we have examples of markets deciding very well for themselves in creating U.S. leadership that's worldwide. Well, first off, I would argue that it's not true that the federal government didn't subsequently continue to make very important funding of semiconductors right up to the very moment, uh, first off. Uh, but second, Look at the chips and science legislation right now and its focus on semiconductors. We have in our analytics shown, for example, that the U.S. has less access to what are called shuttle runs and multi-project wafers than other countries. And those are critical to being able to commercialize emerging devices. So we are at a disadvantage 
in being able to commercialize the next big thing. And that disadvantage doesn't require us to pour tons and tons of money into the problem. Actually, what the federal government is now doing is requiring that if firms are benefiting from our subsidies in establishing domestic facilities here, that they must also then give U.S. researchers more access to running their new designs through this facility. So there's a way that you can save money by acting smarter and ensuring our competitiveness. So the essential recommendation of the report then is, well, you would create something called a CTA, a Critical Technology Assessment Entity. Tell us what that is. So I think I'm going to keep on my focus of cheap in a certain sense. How do we invest limited resources so that we can lead and ensure all of our national objectives are met in the best way possible with those limited resources? So we have analytic capabilities across our country. We have leaders in academia working on these problems. We have leaders in the FFRDCs working on these problems. How do we synthesize that knowledge, but not only synthesize that knowledge, invest in those analytics in a way that brings together the very best capabilities from our country across disciplines, across institutions to inform federal investments? And the answer there is that we need an entity that perhaps similar to the way an ARPA or a DARPA acts is able to orchestrate those analytic capabilities across economics, across engineering, in integrated multidisciplinary teams across the FFRDCs that can be more problem-oriented to answer specific problems and also get out ahead of them. So take, for example, our battery uh, energy storage and critical materials group. Rather than us looking back and saying, for example, oh gosh, we don't have enough masks or oh gosh, we don't have enough infant formula. We have a problem or no, oh no, we have a semiconductor sure. shortage. That team was able to say, look, we can see right now that we are heading straight into a shortage that will have economic and worker jobs impacts on the scale of the semiconductor shortage due to shortages in supply and critical materials. But there are actions we could take right now to get ourselves out of those problems. And that's the type of analytics we need to get out ahead of the problems and to be funding to get out ahead of the problems so that we're not caught off guard. We're speaking with Dr. Erica Fuchs. She's an engineering and public policy professor at Carnegie Mellon University. And briefly, just tell us how this is a 158-page report that the network has come <laughs> out with. And how did you come up with it? And whose hand is it in now? And what do you expect to happen with it? So the, in some ways, mandate or task that either NSF tip gave to us or we gave to ourselves, I'm not sure who should be blamed for the disaster, uh, but it's not a disaster, was what could we do in one year to demonstrate how analytics could inform national investments and limited resources. So we had a four-week search time to say across the country, who could possibly help us answer these questions? And so I was able to bring together different scholars from across the country to the table. And the question in terms of where we go from here is a huge one. Our country doesn't today have this capability in place. NSF tip 
is trying to invest in the future of this capability, even in the intellectual foundations that might be necessary. So how do we go from where we are right now to the next step which our country needs, which is really an agency with program managers or an entity with program managers that can fund for example, in AI, bringing the top disciplines and institutions together to get out ahead of those problems. A program manager and semiconductors that can get out ahead of those problems. But then you need really an entity that has also a technical director that says, oh, wait a second, AI's future is going to be constrained by our inability to advance semiconductor devices. And that's soon. That's in the next five years. So how do we need those two groups to be working together? You need people out there in who are leading in terms of a government director who's saying, oh, wait, what is the government? What are the policy questions government's asking? And how do we say, oh, gosh, this isn't even on government's radar or government's implemented something and we need to see if it's working or if we need to do something different. So defining the right problems to ask is an art. You need program managers who can do that. And you need an office that is able to orchestrate across those program managers, just like you do in DARPA. And then the question of how do you, after having done this instantiation of saying, look, we can really make a difference. We haven't solved the, nor, nor should we, the science advisors challenge, which is sure. what should the country's national technology strategy be? Yeah. We so the structure you envision really sounds almost like the latest ARPA, which is the energy one and the health one. What a fantastic question you ask. I'm actually a scholar who has studied the DARPA mechanisms and how mm -hmm. they work. So I think in the orchestration of analytics across the country, it is very ARPA-like. But what we have to do differently is ARPAs, while they are really good at orchestrating and implementation of emerging technologies, in the analytics case, we are trying to prevent surprise for the country, but we are not going to be taking the same level of risks, right? Uh, we, we don't have a tolerance. Well, our goal is to spend our money more wisely. So we need the orchestration of ARPA, but not the, uh, and the prevention of surprise, sure. but not the risk taking. Sounds like a new bridge across the valley of death for technology. Absolutely. Erica Fuchs is an engineering and public policy professor at Carnegie Mellon University and a member of the National Network for Critical Technology Assessment. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the network's report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? 
Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is, 
what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.